and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. In the last episode, we talked about how the Gothic tribes crossed the Danube River and how the gradual collapse of that frontier sort of led to them running wild and ultimately settling inside the empire. And we also saw throughout that story how this wasn't unique, right? The same time that uh, the Romans were having trouble with the Goths, they were also having trouble with the Picts up in Britannia, right? They had to abandon the province. Uh, And where we left off, the map of what is now modern-day France and Spain had been shaken up like an Etch-a-Sketch. There were tribal confederations all over the place. And part of what allowed this to happen is the way the Romans themselves had been defending their empire. See, in the ancient era, most national borders weren't clearly defined. I mean, there might be a treaty between two rulers saying... Uh, The line between our empires is in the such-and-such valley. But in reality, these were softer affairs. If you wanted to know who your king was, your best bet was not to look at a map, but who you paid your taxes to. And uh, there were some exceptions to that rule, though, one part was this northern frontier of the Roman Empire. Uh, if you got to the south of the Roman Empire, right along uh, North Africa, well, most of that just sort of bleeds into the Sahara, right? You go from Roman control to nomadic lands to the Sahara. Um, in the east, the Romans had a border with Persia. That was a little bit soft. There was constantly conflict there, but in general, both empires knew their place. But in the north, along the Danube River, that was a hard line. Uh, There was a similar hard line in what is now modern-day Germany at the Rhine River and uh, in Britain at Hadrian's Wall. And over the course of time that we talked about in the last episode, roughly 380 to 420 AD, uh, all three of those borders fell. And it's important to understand here that the Roman army that is dealing with this threat is not the same as the Roman army of old, right? This unbeatable legion. Uh, We talked a little bit last time about the crisis of the 3rd century, which was basically a series of civil wars and barbarian invasions that had happened through most of the 3rd century, basically. It was not a good time. And one lesson the Romans had taken from that was that these sort of hard lines, these borders like they had at the Danube and the Rhine were dangerous because if a tribe was able to penetrate through the border defenses, that tribe could then just wreak havoc. 
And what the Romans ended up doing was switching over to a strategy of fortified defense that would look a little bit less like ancient warfare in a little bit more like the medieval knights and castles warfare we picture from the Middle Ages. Now, there were still large armies in the field at times. We'll talk about that. But this sort of standard defense network was a network of small forts, which they were basically castles. I'm going to get in trouble with medievalists here. Somebody's going to say, how dare you? It's only a castle if it's a private residence built during the Middle Ages. And from a strategic perspective, in terms of how you used them, they were castles. And here's what I mean by that. Um... When people think of a castle nowadays, usually, if they think of them in a military sense at all, they think of them as a defensive position, right? Uh, when the invaders come into your lands and they're raping and pillaging, where do you go to hide? Where it's safe, you go to the castle and you hide behind the walls, right? And yes, that's part of it, uh, but a castle is also a strategic offensive weapon when used in the right way. See, a castle can basically be a, a base for a small garrison, you know, 20 to 50 guys with some horses. Uh, is that going to defeat your whole army? No. But if you just ignore the castle and keep penetrating into the empire, what's going to happen? Your supply lines are going to get cut off. Your communications are going to get cut off, right? Those 20, 30, 40 guys on horseback are going to wreak havoc behind your lines. And if you come back to stop them, they're just going to go hide back inside the castle where you can't get them. So what do you have to do? You have to lay a siege on the castle, which means you have to stop your army or separate a bunch of troops off from your army and leave them there, right? It's expensive, it's costly in, in men, it's costly in time. Uh, a castle can really ruin your day if you're a general in any time from this era up through the gunpowder uh, era, really. Uh, you, you do not want to have to deal with having one of these in your rear behind your army. Well, uh, the problem with castles is they're expensive to maintain. Right now, in the Middle Ages, this was done uh, with what we call the feudal system. It's kind of a gross oversimplification the way most people learn about it, but essentially, local leaders were responsible for the maintenance of their local defenses. And this was a tradition that was uh, sort of rooted in the Roman era at this point, if, if you look at how the Roman bureaucracy was structured, uh, you had uh, a title called Dux, D-U-X, sounds a little bit like Duke, doesn't it? Uh, and that person was responsible for the local defenses, and uh, ultimately that sort of became the origin of this ducal system in the Middle Ages. Now, architecture changed a lot, right? Uh, castles got more uh, elaborate and stronger and had uh, countermeasures built into them to defeat people who were attacking them, right? This was an ongoing process. 
but this sort of style of warfare is starting to take shape. And what it ultimately means is that the Romans were not able to keep the same kind of standing army they had been able to keep in the past. Now, again, this is not unusual uh, if you look at the ancient era, right? You look at uh, the Greek city-states, right? Uh, with the exception of the Spartans, most of them were uh, volunteer citizen soldiers. Uh, the early Romans were the same way. It was only the big empires that were able to field permanent standing professional armies. And what the Romans ran into with this intricate system of small fortresses uh, all throughout uh, Gaul and uh, the Eastern Empire as well was when you're paying to maintain all that, you can't also maintain all these legions. Uh, so yes, it becomes very difficult for someone to invade your empire and to establish a presidency. right? We saw that, uh, a little bit of that, uh, with Fritigern in Thrace, right? That whole first year, he couldn't get out uh, because just the few local Roman forts guarding the local mountain passes were garrisoned. These armies couldn't match him in the field, but he couldn't leave these castles uh, behind him. He had to deal with them somehow, and he couldn't. But the problem with this kind of system is once you lose... An area it can be difficult to retake and what I mean by that is is twofold uh, first depending on which barbarians you're dealing with they may simply occupy these local defenses which you have so kindly built for them and use those against you or if they're one of these uh, people like the Huns uh, who are more the raiding and pillaging nomadic type of barbarians well, you're going to need a massive army to extricate them, and you don't have the money for that because you're maintaining all these forts throughout the rest of the empire. It becomes problematic. And this leads to a situation where the empire is just getting sliced and diced to the point where it is no longer what it seems to be on paper. There's a famous document uh, called the Notitia Dignitatum, from around this time period. And it is a beautiful document. Even if you don't read Latin, it's worth uh, running a search for online just to look at some of the pictures uh, in there. And what the Notitia Dignitatum is, is a uh, is essentially a record of the various Roman military units and administrators throughout the empire. And what you see, even well into the 400s, is a bunch of units with a paper strength of up to 750,000 men. Now, depending on which historian you ask, that may be slightly more or slightly less than the maximum strength of the empire at its height. So we know at the very least it had to be lower than that because the Romans are maintaining all these forts. And what we see in fact uh, is that many of these Roman legions that were still around, uh, where they were supposed to have 4,000, 5,000 men, they might have four or 500 men. 
which again was fine for defending these castles when that was all you had to do, but it made uh, offensive operations difficult. And you needed mercenaries to deal with that, right? You could hire some of these tribal peoples. You can play them against each other. You see a lot of that going on. But it means that if you run into any economic trouble, you don't have any of your own native soldiers to fall back on. And that's what the Romans are starting to deal with in this era. Uh, They're also dealing, by the way, with massive depopulation, right? Because you keep having these barbarians come through and you think, yes, there's raping and pillaging. Well, yes, there is, which obviously some people die in the ordinary ways you might expect. But when you've got these people roaming through your empire causing trouble, it disrupts the natural agricultural cycle. Remember, even when we're talking about a big empire like Rome, when we're talking about an ancient society, by any modern standards, it was agrarian, right? Something like 90% of the population were working the farms. And when you've got these barbarians going through raping and pillaging and burning everything, it disrupts that planting and growing cycle, and you end up with famines. So even people who never even saw a Tervingi or any other goth uh, could feel the effects uh, when winter comes along and there's no food in their area. And... In the midst of all of this, you have a Roman bureaucracy that is still playing politics by the old rules, right? They're still playing as if this Roman Empire, this Mediterranean juggernaut, is powerful enough to fight off all comers, right? For centuries, in this Mediterranean world, the only thing that could really threaten the Roman army was another Roman army. And that meant that most of the major wars for a long period had really just been civil wars within the Roman Empire. Uh, They'd come together uh, frequently uh, to fight off Germanic barbarians uh, and other folks. Uh, They were constantly going to war with the Persians, but There was no other player on the block that could really compete with the Romans. And now that had changed, and this imperial bureaucracy that had existed for centuries could not keep up, they were still playing politics. And another thing I should point out is that for most people throughout the empire... During this time period, life is what you might call normal. Uh, The story we told in the last episode spanned roughly 40 years. That's half a human lifetime. So yeah, there was a lot of change, but it was also over a period of time. And keep in mind, right, most of this trouble is localized, Right, when Fritigern is running around Thrace, pillaging this one valley and then this one small region, well, the rest of the empire is more or less fine, right? If you're a traitor uh, in Illyricum, it makes absolutely no difference. Everything is just moving along as normal. Uh, for most people, most of the time, this is the case. But 
Even so, as time goes on, the definition of what normal is slowly changes. And uh, one more thing. Before we move on, mea culpa, last week I said that Ravenna became the capital of the Western Empire in 401. It actually became the capital in 402. Uh, apologies. Nonetheless, where we're at, some 21 years later, in 423, that Emperor Honorius, right, who watched helplessly across a swamp in Ravenna as Alaric and his Goths pillaged Rome, he dies. And, you know, to top everything off with incompetence, Honorius leaves no heir. It would have been really helpful for the Empire if he had bothered to do that. Because what immediately happened is one of those civil wars I was just talking about. Um, the bureaucracy in Ravenna sides with a, a civil servant, a guy named uh, Joannes, and they nominate him uh, to be emperor. But uh, the Eastern Emperor, right, Theodosius II, son of Arcadius, grandson of the original Theodosius from when all this started, uh, he backs his cousin, Valentinian III, who, if you remember, he's the son of Gulla Placidia and Constantius III. Now, if you remember, right, Gulla Placidia, uh, she's the lady... Uh, along with uh, her young son, Valentinian III, who had to flee Rome a few years ago because her brother, Honorius, uh, was putting the moves on her. And uh, as a result, she's been in the Eastern Empire, so has uh, Valentinian, and uh, they immediately uh, get together uh, with some of their top generals and sail across to Italy to go lay siege to Joannes in Ravenna. Now, Joannes has a problem. He doesn't have an army, right? Because of this sort of defensive fort-castle system that the Romans have developed, there are no standing troops in the area, so he has to wrangle up some mercenaries. And to do that, he dispatches his top general, uh, a man named Flavius Aetius, uh, to go find some mercenaries. Now, while Aetius is out... Uh, Valentinian III's troops capture the city. Joannes is deposed and executed. And so, in 425 AD, the young Valentinian III is sworn in as emperor. Now, he's only six years old. He can't exercise power in his own right, but he doesn't have to, because his mother, Galla Placidia, will act as his regent. And she will exercise power on his behalf until he comes of age uh, in 437. Now, this isn't an official position inside the Roman system, this position of regent, but it's what Galla Placidia does. And unfortunately, we run into an instance of what people today would call sexism. In the last episode, I talked about how later Roman empires got their authority uh, 
by building a relationship with their troops and by leading those troops in the field. Uh, well, Valentinian III is six, and there is no way in the Roman system that a woman is ever leading a field army, so Gala Placidia is out. And in terms of getting the loyalty of the army, this sets us up for another Stilicho. Right? Remember Stilicho from last week? He was the general who wasn't the emperor, but he was basically the emperor because he was the one in charge. Uh, we're about to see another example of that. And the example we're going to see is this guy, Flavius Aetius, usually just called Aetius, who Joannes had sent out to find some mercenaries. Uh, now, Aetius is an adventuresome fellow. Some historians have called him the last true Roman. Uh, and what that means is, is he was a native-born Roman who still had the old martial spirit of the old empire. This was becoming less and less common. We talked about the Romans relying more on mercenaries. Well, more often than not, the mercenaries were barbarian people, which in turn leads to a lack of military experience among people who live in the empire, right? They're all playing politics. And Aetius is a little different. He grew up in military service. And as a matter of fact, during the various wars with Alaric, he spent four years as a teenager as a hostage of the Gauls. So he had he he didn't he wasn't just familiar with barbarians he had lived with them, and that kind of familiarity made him very comfortable outside the empire, looking for mercenaries in unusual places, and in 325 A.D., shortly after Valentinian III is sworn in as emperor, Aetius shows back up with an army of Huns at his back. Well, you remember the Huns, right? They're the White Walkers. And now here is a Hunnic army outside Ravenna with Aetius uh, demanding surrender. Uh, he ends up defeating Valentinian's army, but instead of sacking the city or overthrowing the emperor or anything like that, he just asks for command of the army in Gaul. He wants to be a general in the Roman army. And he gets his wish. He is, after all, a member of the Roman aristocracy, and he won fair and square. Uh, and to be fair, Aetius actually does a pretty good job over in Gaul. Uh, he immediately gets to work fighting the Visigoths. Right Now, those are the western half of the Gallic peoples. Right, They're the ones who migrated over into Gaul in part one of our story. Right? That's as opposed to the Ostrogoths, the East Goths, the people who stayed on the other side of the Danube River, right? Well, the Visigoths have been in Gaul, modern-day France, and now they're causing a little bit of trouble leaving the region uh, they had been designated and pillaging the local area. Uh, and uh, Aetius smacks them down, puts an end to the rebellion pretty quickly, 
And during the first few years that he's in charge of Gaul and Gaula Placidia is in charge of Valentinian, things go pretty well. For one thing, there are efforts to reunite the empire. Uh, Valentinian III is betrothed to Theodosius II's young daughter. Right? So that marriage would then reunite the two halves of the empire. And uh, in order to win Theodosius's support for Valentinian, Gaula Placidia had agreed uh, that the Eastern Empire would get control of Illyricum, right? That province in the Balkans, modern-day Croatia, Bosnia, that part of the world, uh, went back into the control of the Eastern Empire for the time being. And... During the next few years, Gaula Placidia took close charge of Valentinian's education. Uh, she personally hired him all the best tutors and supervised them. But while she was doing this, she was neglecting oversight of the empire in important ways. Uh, now, I don't mean to be overly harsh here, right? As I already explained, if you didn't have the respect of the troops as a field commander, it was very difficult to lead in this era in Rome. So Gulla Placidia did the next best thing and made sure that there was no one field commander who had enough power to launch a coup and overtake the empire. And in theory, this would have worked out fine, except Aetius had an ongoing rivalry with another top commander, right? Aetius is in charge in Gaul, modern-day France, what remains of it in Romans' control, and Boniface is the commander in North Africa. And in 428, right, that's just a couple years after being positioned in Gaul, Aetius sends a message to Gaula Placidia and he says that Boniface is setting up his own personal tyranny in Libya. Now, in, in the Roman world, a tyranny was an illegitimate governorship, right? Basically, what Aetius is saying is, hey, Boniface is just making himself king of Libya and splitting off from the empire. Uh, so Gallaplacidia sends some emissaries to see if this is true. Uh, it's not true. And the emissaries see that, but Boniface just freaks out. He thinks he's going to get fired because he thinks Aetius is somehow going to make some sort of accusation stick against him. So he immediately rounds up an army of mercenary barbarians and marches on Rome. Now, everything gets sorted out between the Romans, uh, right, Gala Placidia and Boniface talk this out, and Boniface agrees to disband his army. Uh, but at this point, he had already promised his mercenaries uh, that they would get some land in Libya as a reward for helping him out. Uh, and he tries to renege on the deal, and that's not a good idea. Uh, they end up laying siege to him uh, at a city called Hippo Regius, which is in modern-day Tunisia. And these vandals who are laying siege to him there are really far from home. Uh, they're actually 
Germanic in origin, like many of these barbarians from the Roman era. So they've traversed clear across Europe, across the Mediterranean Sea, and here they are in North Africa going to war. And when I was doing some of my research, I was amused to see these old woodcuts of Vandal warriors. And the woodcuts I saw, the Vandals were dressed like Renaissance-era German mercenaries, right? Landsknechts, they're called, these uh, pikemen. And they, they wore these really distinct outfits. Essentially, they would take looted clothing and slash the clothing up, and these clothes would be layered on top of each other in all kinds of crazy colors and combinations, and the look is, is really iconic. Now, of course, this is nothing like the Vandal mercenaries who uh, Boniface has hired, but it was interesting to see the mind of a Renaissance-era artist sort of reading these stories about Germanic mercenary soldiers and depicting them in this, this sort of Renaissance-era way. In reality, the Vandals would have worn clothing similar to other Germanic barbarians, right? Maybe some fur, maybe some chainmail, depending on how much money the guys got. Certainly not these crazy colorful outfits, but it does say something about the spirit of these people, right? On a deeper level, I think this Landsknecht comparison is apt because these vandals, really, they're just out for the money, right? None of this would have happened if Boniface hadn't told them he was going to give them land for going to war. Uh, but ultimately, like many of these barbarian peoples, they don't have technology to make uh, any sort of siege equipment. So they can't break through the city walls and they ultimately give up on the siege. Uh, Boniface raises another army with another barbarian ally, uh, drawing men from all over the empire. Right, Theodosius, the Eastern Empire, gets involved too. He sends some troops. And something disappointing happens here because we don't actually have a good written account of the battle. We're getting into an era of history where our accounts aren't always as rich as we would like, and we don't know what happens here, but we don't know that this joint barbarian mercenary slash Eastern Roman army failed to defeat uh, the Vandal army, and the Vandal army, after this one battle, was now in control of most of Roman North Africa. And I gotta be honest, I kinda like these guys. And what I mean by that is that our white walkers, our Huns, who we still haven't really talked about much, they're sort of a one-dimensional character. Right? What does Attila do? He rapes and pillages his way across the countryside. That's pretty much all he does. Hulk smash. And... It's certainly important, but it's not as entertaining to watch as the way the Vandals 
are able to sort of play all sides against each other over the next few decades. And if, if I had to pick one winner out of any of this whole time period, it would be the Vandals, uh, right? The Roman Empire collapses. All these barbarians get attacked by the Huns. They get moved around. None of them are really doing any better or worse, though. Uh, and these Vandals sort of get this sweet kingdom in North Africa, which uh, was one of the wealthiest parts of the Roman Empire at the time. And they get it for the cost of one battle. And the king of the Vandals is a man named Geyseric, sometimes called Genseric. And here's a good example of his wisdom. And it, it, it tells you something, too, right, about the historian, because the historian we have for this uh, is a Greek chronicler from the 7th century named Procopius. And Procopius doesn't tell us anything about this battle where Geyseric's army smashes this huge coalition army, but he does tell us what Geyseric does afterwards. Uh, here's what he says. He says, At that time, Geyseric, after conquering Aspar and Boniface in battle, displayed a foresight worth recounting, whereby he made his good fortune most thoroughly secure. For fearing, lest if once again an army should come against him from both Rome and Byzantium, the Vandals might not be able to use the same strength and enjoy the same fortune, since human affairs are wont to be overturned by heaven and to fail by reason of the weakness of men's bodies, he was not lifted up by the good fortune he had enjoyed, but rather became moderate because of what he feared, and so he made a treaty with the Emperor Valentinian providing that each year he should pay the emperor a tribute from Libya, and he delivered over one of his sons, Honoric, as a hostage to make this agreement binding. So Geyseric both showed himself a brave man in the battle and guaranteed the victory as securely as possible, and since the friendship between the two peoples increased greatly, he received back his son Honoric. Regardless of what you think of Geyseric. And we'll hear more about him as we move forward. The lights have gone out, so to speak, in Libya and much of the rest of North Africa, right? Yet again, Carthage has fallen. And much like Great Britain, would never again come under Roman control. Now, as you can imagine... Gala Placidia was less than pleased with this development, and she wasn't going to let it go unanswered. So she had Aetius stripped of his field command, and Boniface appointed in his place in Gaul. Uh, and the two men fight in the year 432, and it's another one of these battles where we don't get a really good description of what happened on a tactical level. Uh, but what we do know is that Boniface wins the battle, and Aetius is uh, ultimately sent into exile. He goes to live with his friend Ruga, uh, a Hunnic king. But during the course of the battle, uh, Boniface is wounded, and he dies just a few months later. Now, according to some accounts, Aetius fought Boniface 
in single combat. Uh, some even say that he won because he had a longer spear. Uh, not sure what that's all about, but uh, regardless, uh, Boniface was mortally wounded and died shortly thereafter, once again leaving command of that uh, Gallic part of the Roman Empire vacant. And Aetius takes advantage of this situation, right? He's hanging out with his buddy Ruga, one of the kings of the Huns. Not a lot of Romans gutsy enough to go do that. And uh, yeah, with uh, a little bit of implicit uh, threatening, Aetius regains his command in Gaul. And at that point, he engages in one of the more entertaining acts of revenge in history. Right? He doesn't just satisfy himself that he won and Boniface is dead. No, as one of his first acts, he exiles Boniface's son to Constantinople. Then he buys all of Boniface's property, his house, a couple of estates, he moves in, and he marries Boniface's widow, a lady named Pelagia. I mean, just the sheer and utter chutzpah it takes to take that level of revenge on another human being uh, is actually quite impressive. Uh, and for the next couple of decades, uh, Aetius, first alongside Gala Placidia, and then later uh, alongside uh, Valentinian III in his own right, uh, they actually did a reasonably good job, I don't want to say of clawing back the Western Roman Empire, but of maintaining the status quo. Uh, things didn't get worse, uh, but Aetius was on campaign every year, more or less. Uh, when you read chronicles of his life, you know, it, he went to war with this tribe in 433, and then he wintered in this city, and then in 434, he went to war with this other tribe, and he's just running back and forth all over Gaul, basically putting out fires for almost 20 years, okay? Right, this guy is in charge starting in uh, 432. Well, really, by the time he actually takes command for good, 433. Um, and he's sort of in this putting out fires mode all the way up until 449. Now, during this time period, Rome does not completely dominate Gaul. Gaul, again, being modern-day France, but Rome is the biggest bully on the block, right? She can beat any one barbarian tribe, and by constantly switching back and forth and subjugating the tribes one by one, Aetius is able to keep things at least stable. Um, and one of the people he fights constantly is a leader of the Visigoths, right? Those Goths who settled in Gaul. Well, their leader now is a guy named Theodoric. And he fights Aetius a few times. He's always trying to expand that Visigothic kingdom. And the Visigoths were not the only tribe 
causing trouble there, right? You had the Burgundians, the Franks, you had the Alamanni, you, you, you had several different tribes, but the Visigoths were in many ways the most bold because they'd been there the longest. Uh, in many ways, right, you're talking about people now, uh, the people who would have been of military age, well, they'd grown up in this area, right? For all intents and purposes, uh, they didn't live outside the empire in some wasteland north of the Danube. They lived right here in Gaul. And uh, if they wanted to expand their territory a little bit, uh, well, so be it. That was their right. They had earned it. Uh, nonetheless, with respect to the, the overall strategic picture in that area, the Romans are still dominant. Now, they will never regain Britain, right? As a matter of fact, uh, some of the British tribes who are still under attack by the Picts call again for Aetius to help. Uh, he can't. And uh, many of the Romanized British people around this time actually migrated back to Gaul, back to what was, you know, at that point at least nominally part of the empire, the northwestern coast of France, and that is why that region today is called Brittany. But for all this time, Aetius remains the one constant that keeps the western empire stable. And remember, again, as all this is going on, right, this sort of 20-year stalemate, right, where the fortunes of the empire remain stable. The White Walkers are still slowly marching in. And by the year 449, they're united behind a single king. And his name is Attila. Now, when it comes to historic descriptions of the Huns, we don't have as much to go on as a lot of people would like. And the problem is that all of our sources about the Huns are Greek or Latin, right? They're people that the Huns invaded. And you never get the story of the Huns from their own perspective. We do have a few things that we know for sure, right? They were uh, this old-school, nomadic steppe people, horse-archer-type warrior that we've seen again and again throughout history. Uh, and they're also universally described as being short and ugly. And this is true regardless of your source. Now, it's hard to say exactly where this comes from for sure, right? I mean, on the one hand, these days it would be easy enough to say, well, that's just old-school racism, but the modern idea of racism does not map well onto this ancient Mediterranean world, right? I mean, in the Roman Empire, one of their most respected trade partners was the Numidian Empire. Now, those people were what we would call Ethiopians, right? Black African people, and they were respected trading partners of the Romans, right? We had... African emperors. Now, on the other hand, we also had all of these recurring wars and invasions by blonde-haired, blue-eyed barbarians. So I don't think racism is it, but 
there is a practice that the Huns carried out that may explain these descriptions. And that's a practice called head-binding. Now, many of you may be familiar with the old Chinese practice of foot-binding, right? One of the good things that Mao Zedong did when he took over the country was banned this practice of foot-binding where little girls' feet were tied up uh, as young girls and essentially wrapped so they wouldn't grow, so they would stay tiny. And this caused horrible deformities, made it you know, impossible for girls to walk comfortably or function normally in everyday life. And what the Huns did was something similar. They did it with the skull, though. And you end up with some of these Hunnic warriors, not all of them, not even most of them, but some of them, have these crazy alien-like skulls. I, I don't want to say they look like cone heads. It's not quite right, but uh, quite bizarre and outside anything that we would, even today, would consider a norm, right? If you did this to your kid today, uh, you would lose custody because it would be considered child abuse, Nonetheless, that's what we have to go on about the Huns from our one-sided accounts. And because the accounts are one-sided, we don't know much about Attila's early life, right? Anybody who was there didn't write down what they saw. Or if they did, the records haven't survived. Uh, but we do have the records of a 6th century Gothic historian named Jordanus. And here is how he describes Attila. And it doesn't necessarily give us a Hunnic perspective, but it gives us a perspective of someone from not too much later in time who also came from a quote-unquote barbarian culture. And here's what Jordanus says. He says, He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes hither and thither, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to supplicants, and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. Short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head, his eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose and swarthy skin, showing evidence of his origin. Now, isn't that tantalizing, right? We have this swarthy fellow showing up off of the Eurasian steppes. A contemporary, more or less contemporary historian is describing him as sort of East Asian in appearance. And then we do have some archaeological evidence, right, as we talked about last week, that the Huns may have been this Zhongnu people who originated right outside of China. And... Again, this is controversial. We will never know for sure, probably. But 
it's just kind of a fascinating thing to play with. Uh, regardless, what we do know about Attila in particular is that he had ruled jointly uh, for several years with his brother Bleda. And during this time, the Hanuk people did not have what we modern people would consider sort of an orderly government succession, for lack of a better term. Uh, my personal favorite term for the Huns is uh, land pirates. Uh, basically, they had a meritocratic society, and the leader was whoever was able to supply the most loot for all the various smaller tribes and chiefs. And at that time, Attila and Bleda were the best. Now, they did this by constantly making war on their neighbors, right? You want to enrich all your allies? Well, if you're good at making war, rather than conquering all your neighbors, you could just repeatedly invade them and demand money. And that's what Attila did. Uh, he'd already invaded the eastern half of the Roman Empire twice at this point. Uh, most recently... He'd invaded in 443 and sacked several cities. And during the experience, Attila's armies learned something that most of these other steppe peoples would never learn. And that was they learned how to lay siege to a city and how to build siege equipment, right? Even later, when you look at the Mongols, they're never very good at siege warfare. They pull off some sieges in China because they have Chinese advisors who are good at siege warfare. But the Mongols themselves never really have a good hang of it. Uh, the Parthians were never good at it. The Scythians were never good at it. Uh, but the Huns are. They can lay siege to a city. They can beat this castle or fortress-based defensive system that has worked so well for the Romans uh, for nigh on a century at this point. Uh, Attila's armies can build battering rams and siege towers, and they will make great use of these tools. And at this point, Theodosius II is now paying an annual tribute of 2,100 Roman pounds of gold every year to Attila. Now, I did the math, and that's 700 kilograms, which at today's exchange rates is more than $43 million. So Attila was getting paid $43 million a year in ancient times not to invade the Eastern Empire. That takes uh, some serious guts, and... Attila wasn't satisfied. He wanted it all. And at some point around the year 445, his brother Bleda dies. Now, most historians say that Bleda was killed by Attila. Again, we don't have a first-hand source. We don't have somebody who's inside the hunting court at this time who comes back and says to us, yeah, I was there, and Attila stabbed him in the back or whatever. But uh, Attila, in 449 AD, for certain by that point, is the sole leader of the Huns. And they still aren't getting any tribute 
from the western half of the Roman Empire. As you can imagine, Rome is quite a juicy target, even in its current state. And Attila just needs an excuse to get involved. And in the year 450, the Emperor Valentinian gives him one. Now, without getting too far off into the weeds, there's a bunch of senatorial drama going on, and Valentinian tries to marry off his sister Honoria to an influential senator as part of one of his schemes. Now, Honoria wants no part of this, and she sends a letter to Attila asking for his help. And inside the envelope, she encloses her engagement ring. Attila considers this a marriage proposal, and uh, naturally enough, he accepts. As is the tradition of the time, he names his dowry, and he claims as his dowry the gift that her family will have to give him on their wedding day he claims half the Western Empire. Now, Valentinian is obviously having none of this. Uh, he sends a messenger to Attila, telling him the proposal was clearly not serious. And he also exiles Honoria and forces her to marry another senator. And in fact, uh, it was only the fact that Gaula Placidia had begged and pleaded with Valentinian that kept him from having Honoria executed. And that is one of the last few acts uh, that we know of from Gala Placidia. Uh, she ultimately died just a few months later, and she would not see the infamous Hunnic invasion that was about to happen. Because Attila was not just going to let this go. He sent a messenger back to Valentinian, who said uh, that the proposal most certainly was legitimate, and moreover, he intended to press his claim. He was going to come down and rescue Honoria. And in the spring of 451, Attila and his Huns do just that. And they don't come straight across the Alps in Italy. Instead, they sort of go around. They come out of Germania, modern-day Germany, across the Rhine into Gaul. And they penetrate as far as the city of Orleanium. Uh, that is the modern city of Orléans. And if you look at a map of France, it's not very close to the German border. The Huns had penetrated quite far, and this was not because of the lack of a Roman response. Aetius had responded almost immediately upon getting word that the Huns had crossed the Rhine, and he makes his way very quickly uh, to Orlanium, but he makes his way so quickly that he hasn't had time to gather any troops. He's got a handful of auxiliary troops and a few recruits he's picked up along the way. But all of his regular troops, what few of them there are that he has to spare, 
are scattered across Gaul. They can't unite to beat back the Huns in an efficient manner. He needs help. And who does he look to but the next-door Visigoths under the command of Theodoric, who might also have something to fear from a Hunnic invasion. And at first, Theodoric dithers. He wants to wait until the Huns have actually penetrated his own territory, right? He's betting that they won't, that the Huns will turn around before they reach that part of Gaul. And they'll do a lot of damage to the Romans while Theodoric just sits there minding his own business. Uh, And Aetius uh, doesn't give up. He consults with a former Praetorian prefect, a man named Avitus, uh, who's still in the area. He's got a good relationship with Theodoric, unlike most Romans. And Avitus is able to convince uh, Theodoric to join with Aetius and form a joint Roman Visigoth army. Now, this is a little bit unusual. On the one hand, it's not unusual for Roman troops to fight as part of a coalition, right? This is normal throughout their history. Way back during the uh, Punic Wars, they were dealing with Italian allies and other allied states, and even throughout their history, right, you would see multiple times joint Roman-Armenian operations against the Persians. Well, you might see a Roman legion alongside an Armenian army, but if the two of them were going out at an operation together, the Roman army was almost invariably the more powerful of the two. They were the senior power in the coalition. And here, for the first time in a very long time, uh, a major battle is happening inside the empire and the Roman troops are the junior partner in their coalition. The bulk of this army is Visigothic. Now, they march north from Orléans, Orléanium, and they pursue Attila. Now, Attila is fleeing Gaul, right? He is invading under the pretext, right, that he is going to somehow save Honoria's honor and marry her. But what he really wants is an excuse to loot something, right? He wants to raid. And he's in no hurry. He's had his fill for the year. And as uh, is their custom, the Huns are going to withdraw for the winter. Uh, But they have to watch their back. And Aetius... And Theodoric's joint force catches up with them quickly. Now, depending on your source, they may catch up as quickly as a week after leaving Orlanium. It might have taken as long as the end of September. Uh, We're not really sure how long it took this coalition army to catch up with the Huns is a matter of some debate. Uh, It may have only taken them a week may have taken them as long as the end of September, but either way, in late summer or early autumn of the year 451, this coalition army catches up with the Huns. Uh, The day before the battle, some uh, Roman-allied Frankish barbarians uh, catch up and have a skirmish with some uh, Gepids. Those are Romanian people who are allied with the Huns. 
Jordanus says that 15,000 men died on both sides. This is probably a gross exaggeration. Uh, He also says that the Huns had invaded Gaul with an army of 500,000 men. And this is probably an exaggeration of at least five times, if not a full mortar of magnitude. Uh, The real size of the Hunnic army was most likely between 50 and 80,000 men, which is still a lot. And this Roman Visigothic force was able to match those numbers. And the night before the battle, according to a legend, Attila's priests examined some entrails. Uh, They've sacrificed an animal, and they're asking the gods to tell them to send them an omen of how the battle will go. And according to this tradition, Attila's priests say that he will lose the battle, but that the enemy will lose one of their leaders. Now, obviously, who knows if this was true? This is probably just something that people made up afterwards because it's kind of a neat story. But on the other hand, you, you never know. It's, it's always kind of interesting to consider. Uh, now, the morning of the battle, the armies spent until afternoon deploying. Right. Uh, general consensus is that no fighting actually started until about 2.30 in the afternoon. Now, some historians tie this back to that story of the omen that Attila is planning on a retreat and he wants the sun to be at his enemy's back, not at his back, so he won't be silhouetted while retreating. We don't know. Uh, More likely, uh, unless you're the sort of person who believes in omens, uh, more likely Attila and the Roman Visigothic force were both taking a long time to deploy their forces because they both had large coalition armies. Uh, And nobody knows where this battle happened. Happened somewhere near Champagne in France. Now, what we can be relatively certain about is that the battlefield was dominated by a large ridge. Um, The Huns lined up on one end of the ridge, the Romans and their allies lined up on the other end, and both sides charged together to fight for the middle. Uh, Now, Aetius was leading uh, the Roman left flank, which was fighting in a defensive posture, And uh, some Frankish units were in the middle. The Franks were considered the least dependable members of this coalition, so they were sort of there between the other two groups to bolster their morale or their loyalty, as the case may be. And uh, Theodoric and his Visigoths were lined up on the Roman right. And what they did was they fought forward in an aggressive posture and penetrated deep into the Hunnic flank, and ultimately that side of the Hun line collapsed. And the Visigoths wrap around this backside of the Hun army, and they almost envelop it. Attila himself is nearly caught in this enclosure, and he and his troops have to flee rapidly. Now, um, 
this is not without cost. Theodoric, the Visigothic leader, is killed in the fighting. According to some stories, he's thrown from his horse and trampled by his own men. Regardless, he's dead. And as is so often the case, the Roman side does not have a lot of cavalry. They can't pursue quickly. Uh, now, they do try to pursue. The Huns manage to beat the Romans back to their camp, and their camp is surrounded by a wagon logger, right? This circle of wagons, like we saw at the Battle of Adrianople. And at this point, the coalition leaders get together and consult. And the Franks, as well as Theodoric's son, Thorismund, the presumed new Visigothic leader, uh, they want to press the attack. They want to be aggressive. And Aetius convinces Thorismund of the Franks that Attila is beaten. Now, Aetius's motives here are questionable. On the one hand, he might be giving Theodoric good advice, right? Because one thing he tells him is, hey, your dad just died. Uh, technically, you're the king, but you've got these brothers back at home, and while you're out here cleaning up after Attila, maybe one of them decides to seize the throne. Maybe he's right. Uh, but... In all likelihood, Aetius really didn't want the Huns to be totally defeated. Uh, he'd been dealing with these Visigoths and these barbarian tribes for years, right? He spent, uh, at this point, almost 20 years constantly putting down rebellions. And with this common threat of the Huns, all of a sudden he was able to put together a coalition army. So Aetius is probably feeling pretty good about Attila going out of the empire with his tail between his legs, but remaining an external threat. Now, we don't know what Aetius's motivations were, but it's interesting to consider that counterfactual, right? What if he and Thorismund had mounted that charge against Attila's wagon locker. Would the Huns have been well and truly beaten? Would Attila have been killed? Would the fall of the Roman Empire have been prevented? Or is Aetius right and Thorismund would have gone right back to being rebellious? Now, we really don't know, uh, but what did happen was that the next year Attila decided not to invade Gaul. Now, we're not sure why he did this, right? Maybe he was not happy with the loot he'd gotten from Gaul. Maybe it just didn't make sense to loot the same area twice in a row. But what he does this time is he makes an attack on Italy proper. And he starts by coming over the Alps from modern-day Austria into the Roman city of Aquileia which is near modern-day Venice. And at the time, Aquileia was the major trading city for the region. There was a lot to loot there, but the city was also well defended. And Aetius didn't have too many troops, right? They're still all over Gaul uh, at this point in 452. And he dispatches some garrison troops to help, 
but he can't do much more than that. Now, the besieged last out as long as they can. In fact, Attila almost gives up, but ultimately the city falls and he sacks it. And people will talk about the various sacks of Rome as if they're these titanic historic events, and in many ways they are. But in this particular invasion, right, people always talk about the Huns sacking Rome. How many times have you heard people talk about the sack of Aquileia? And yet that was in some ways more influential, right? The city of Rome still stands today. It's a pretty important city, pretty major city. Uh, Aquileia has never been the same. One of the largest cities in the Mediterranean was razed to the ground to the point where chroniclers a couple hundred years later said you couldn't even find the site of the city. Now, there's a town there now. That's, that is a bit of an exaggeration. We know where Aquileia was, but it's nothing like the metropolis that had been there. And the survivors of the raising of Aquileia fled to some islands in a nearby lagoon. And from the safety of those islands, they built a new city that would ultimately become Venice. But that Glory would have to wait. For now, there was no army between Attila and the city of Rome. He sacked his way across Italy, basically robbing anything that wasn't tied down and burning anything like food that could have been used to support the Romans against him. When he arrives outside the city of Rome... In the summer of 452, there are no defenses. And ultimately, if the stories are to be believed, this mighty nomadic warrior is bet by the small, pious frame of Pope Leo. Now, nobody knows what Pope Leo said to Attila, but whatever he said in this little conversation they had outside the walls of Rome convinced the Hunnic leader to turn back. Now, I should point out that this story is in many regards questionable. It's possible that the Pope was never involved at all. It's possible that Attila simply turned back because he was running out of supplies or because the new Eastern Empire, a man named Marcion, had stopped paying tribute and was raiding the Hunnic homeland, right? Sounds like a pretty good reason for Attila to stop raiding Italy and turn around and uh, take care of things on the home front. Regardless, the Huns withdrew. Now, at the time, this was only a temporary reprieve, right? Attila uh, was in his early middle age, could easily have come back and caused trouble again and again. But 
the next year in 453 before he had the chance to make any move against the Roman Empire, Attila died under mysterious circumstances. He had just gotten married, and as was customary amongst many people at the time and many people today, uh, he engaged in some fairly heavy drinking on the night of his wedding, and... Some historians say he drank himself to death. Others say that he was poisoned by his new wife. Jordanus says that this new eastern emperor, Marcion, might have had something to do with it, might have had him poisoned. But regardless, the morning after his wedding, Attila was found in his bedroom, having vomited blood all over himself with his new young bride weeping over the body. And here's how Jordanus describes what happens. He says, His body was placed in the midst of a plain, and lay in state in a silken tent as a sight for men's admiration. The best horsemen of the entire tribe of the Huns rode around in circles, after the manner of circus games, and the place to which he had been brought, and told of his deeds in a funeral dirge in the following manner. The chief of the Huns, King Attila, born of his sire Mundiuk, lord of bravest tribes, sole possessor of the Scythian and German realms, powers unknown before, captured cities and terrified both empires of the Roman world, appeased by their prayers, took annual tribute to save the rest from plunder, And when he had accomplished all this by the favor of fortune, he fell not by wound of the foe nor by treachery of friends, but in the midst of his nation at peace, happy in his joy and without sense of pain. Who can rate this as death when none believes it calls for vengeance? When they had mourned him with such lamentations, a strava, as they call it, was celebrated over his tomb with great reveling. They gave way in turn to the extremes of feeling and displayed funeral grief alternating with joy. And at this point, I almost can't help but think again of something from Game of Thrones. And I'm talking about the Dothraki, right? These horse people who just sort of had these wild public orgies at what we would consider the most inappropriate times, and that's kind of what this Strava sounds like. Uh, But, Jordanus goes on to say, Then, in the secrecy of night, they buried his body in the earth. They bound his coffins, the first with gold, the second with silver, and the third with the strength of iron, showing by such means that these three things suited the mightiest of kings. Iron, because he subdued the nations. Gold and silver, because he received the honors of both empires. They also added the arms of foemen won in the fight, trappings of rare worth, sparkling with various gems and ornaments of all sorts, whereby princely state is maintained. And that so great riches might be kept from human curiosity, they slew those appointed to the work, a dreadful pay for their labor." And thus sudden death was the lot of those who buried him as well as of him who was buried. One can't help 
but think again of some of these other famous steppe peoples, right? We have similar legends about Alaric. Uh, some records state that when Alaric died, his men diverted a river and buried him in the riverbed and then diverted the river back so he couldn't be disturbed. And then similarly, they killed all the slaves who did it so that nobody could tell. You hear similar legends about the burial of Genghis Khan. And on the one hand, this does sound that it's just the sort of thing that ancient people would brag about. But on the other hand, where are the graves? Nobody's found the tomb of Alaric or the tomb of Attila or the tomb of Genghis Khan. So maybe this story is true. But regardless, upon the death of Attila, no one Hunnic warlord is able to keep all the Huns united. The empire this Eastern European Hunnic Empire falls apart in a matter of a few years, and the White Walkers, anticlimactically, just go away. Now, at this point, an emperor with Aetius's level of foresight would immediately think of the broader ramifications of this Hunnic collapse, right? We've got a power vacuum... Who's going to take advantage? Right, Someone who understands what's going on militarily and strategically on the ground in the Roman Empire is not going to take chances at this point. Unfortunately, Valentinian is playing politics. See, in 453, Aetius secures the patrol of his own son, Gaudentius, with Valentinian's daughter, Placidia. And Valentinian was hesitant to approve the match. But he was wary of Aetius. He really needed it because of these Huns. He agreed to it. And now the Huns are gone in 454. And a senator named Marcus Petronius convinces Valentinian that Aetius is plotting to take the throne, not for himself, but for his son, by organizing this marriage with uh, Valentinian's daughter Placidia. And now in 454, with Attila dead and this massive threat gone, Valentinian feels free to act. Aetius is visiting Ravenna, delivering a report on his financials, and Valentinian yells that Aetius is drunkenly squandering the empire's funds, draws his sword, and strikes the unarmed Aetius on the head. And then he and his chamberlain, a eunuch named Heraclius, finish off Aetius. And Valentinian thought that this was a brilliant move. He later bragged about it in the Senate. He said he did well to kill Aetius. And a senator spoke up and said that he didn't know if Valentinian had done well or not, but that he had certainly cut off his right hand with his left. 
right? He had gotten rid of the military genius who had kept things stable. And I should point out that this is probably the exact sort of thing that would not have happened if Gallup Lacidia hadn't died four years earlier. But she was no longer there. Valentinian was on his own. And he was clearly in over his head. Now, Maximus, right, the senator, Petronius Maximus, who pushed Valentinian into uh, killing Aetius, had expected to receive Aetius's military command, right, this generalship in Gaul. And instead, Heraclius, right, this eunuch advisor of Valentinian, convinces him to leave the post vacant, which in itself is probably good advice because this senior military position was just causing trouble. Unfortunately, because he didn't get what he wanted, Maximus decided to plot against Valentinian. And in 455 AD, just less than a year after Aetius's death, uh, some former Aetius supporters kill Valentinian at Maximus's urging. Uh, Valentinian is arriving for archery practice. He's inside his own grounds, has every reason to feel safe. He gets off his horse, and as he's dismounting, he's stabbed through the temple by one of his soldiers, a soldier who had previously served under Aetius. And uh, at that point, a group of soldiers kill both him and Heraclius, and... Not a single guard in the courtyard raised a finger to help the emperor. They had all served with Aetius. And again, it should have been obvious to Maximus, right, that he had just killed a figurehead. Right, that the true power in the empire now lay with the military, but he didn't get it. And he immediately declared himself emperor. And the first thing he did was go and cause trouble with his neighbors, these vandals down in North Africa. Yeah, remember the vandals with King Geyseric? Well, we're back to them. And Geyseric had managed to do what many of these other barbarians couldn't. He'd learned to play Roman politics. And he had gotten his son engaged to the stepdaughter of the former emperor Valentinian. He's engaged to this young woman named Eudocia. And when Maximus becomes emperor, he marries Valentinian's widow, Licinia Eudoxia, and cancels his now stepdaughter's marriage to King Geyseric's son. King Geyseric is understandably upset and immediately sails an invasion fleet to Ostia. This is a port that uh, supplies the city of Rome up the Tiber River. And not only does he occupy the port, he knocks down the aqueducts that run through the area that feed the city of Rome. So now the city is 
out of fresh water and a vandal army is coming in and oh yes the city is once again undefended because of this castle and fortress system that has been set up which means there's no giant garrison army sitting here in the capital city so Kaiseric is able just to walk right up to the walls of Rome without meeting any opposition and Maximus this man who has been emperor for less than three months realizes that he has screwed up royally and tries to flee the city with a few of his personal bodyguards. A Roman mob swarms his bodyguard as he tries to get out one of the gates. Uh, he's pulled from his horse and killed. And uh, at this point, no one is left in charge in the city which makes things awkward for Geyseric because he has nobody to negotiate with all of a sudden. And in an interesting parallel of the alleged events from a few years ago where Pope Leo negotiated with Attila, old Pope Leo once again comes walking outside the city walls of Rome and has to negotiate with some barbarians. And he ultimately negotiates a deal with Geyseric that Geyseric can loot the city, but they cannot destroy public monuments or murder people. Geyseric, being a good Christian, agrees and the gates are thrown open. And again, you're left thinking of the earlier sack of Gaul under Alaric and this same type of sort of Christian civilized sack. We're going to take your stuff, but we're going to leave you alive. Now, it was still fairly traumatic for the people of Rome, right? The vandals were there for 14 days, uh, and they did sack a lot of property. Uh, for instance, they took the bronze cladding from the roof of the Temple of Jupiter, among others. These ancient buildings that had been there since the days of the Roman Republic were being reduced to shells of their former self. And Geyseric also took with him some hostages. He took Licinia Eudoxia, right? The widow of Valentinian, who is now the widow of Maximus. He took Eudocia, who was engaged to his son. And he took Placidia, who had been quote-unquote engaged to Attila the Hun, kicking off the Hunnic invasion. Now, at this point, the empire was theoretically still stable, right? But there were now generations of people in the former empire who had not actually seen any real Roman power in their homeland their entire lives. I mean, keep in mind, right, until the Industrial Revolution, the average person was born, lived, and died within 20 miles of their home, right? Unless you were exceptionally wealthy, or you were some kind of merchant, or you served in the army, you really didn't get out much. And so for a lot of these people in the more remote areas of the empire, the days of the powerful, all-encompassing Imperium were sounding more and more like an old fairy tale. And with this came the loss of a cohesive Roman identity, 
right now? As I said, the Romans had integrated people from outside the empire before, but never this many and never at this rate, right? There were people coming in so fast that previous generations still had not become fully Romanized before more barbarians were coming in, right? You want these people to speak Latin. You want them to shave off those barbarian mustaches, right? You want them to act Roman. And in the past, that had happened slowly over generations, and it wasn't happening now because the rate of change was too fast. And there was a compounding issue here, and that was the loss of North Africa. Now, when we think of North Africa today, most people in the Western world think of this sort of dry, arid area, but that's simply not accurate. Uh, for one thing, factually, it's not true even today, right? You go to Libya or Algeria, and you're looking at countries that are net exporters of olive oil, that have acres and acres and acres of farmland. But there was even more farmland there during the time of the Roman Empire, right? The Carthaginian settlers and then the Romans who took over after them had invested a great deal of time and effort in irrigation, right? ensuring that there was as much arable cropland as possible. And now in the later empire, you had a few things going on. One, the barbarians that were moving in were more pastoral people, right? They relied more on raising animals than they did on raising crops, which meant they were less reliant on irrigation. And you also had some climate change going on uh, over the past thousand years or so. The, the northern part of Africa had gotten a little bit drier. And to top it all off, uh, what drives this stereotype is the fact that the people who moved in after the Visigoths, the, uh, the Muslim empires and others who moved into North Africa were also pastoral people, right? Again, they didn't maintain this irrigation system that the Carthaginians and Romans had built because they weren't using it. So why spend a bunch of time and money maintaining it? And that has further degraded the usefulness of the land. Nonetheless, it is a far more arable region than most uh, Westerners, particularly most Americans, probably give it credit for. And the loss of this territory was a big deal. The grain and the olive oil and the other produce from the province of Libya, which is what the uh, Romans called North Africa, it, it was what fed the Roman armies. It was what fueled the Roman economy, right? This trade back and forth across the Mediterranean, right? So many people today think of the Roman Empire as a European empire. And that is so wrong-headed 
that I can't even begin to fully explain how wrong-headed it is, right? This is a Mediterranean empire. This is an empire based on sea-based trade. And as long as the different sides of Mediterranean are trading back and forth with each other, ancillary losses on the outside of the empire aren't really a big deal. On the other hand, once you start to lose this trade in the Roman heartland, right? And I say heartland ironically, the heart waters of the Mediterranean, you start to lose the economic engine that drives the Roman Empire. And when you start to lose that engine, you go into a cycle of failure where it becomes increasingly more difficult to get out. And while all of this is going on at this point, uh, the empire has been reduced now to Italy and southeastern Gaul and uh, what we would call now uh, Dalmatia, what they called Illyria, right? The Balkans, uh, uh, Croatia, that area. Other than that, everything else was in barbarian hands and there was no economic engine to drive things so you could sort of turn that situation around. And... When we started this episode, the Romans were still the biggest kid on the block, but now they're in a more more of an alliance of equals with the Visigoths under Theodoric, right? And meanwhile, Avitus the dude who helped out Aetius when he was having trouble raising that coalition army to beat back the Huns, this guy Avitus, who has ties with the Visigoths, is now the new emperor. Now, Avitus is a Gallo-Roman noble, right, meaning he's of uh, mixed descent, and he grew up in Gaul, so he knows most of these factions in the area. And what he tries to do... Uh, with the support, I should say, of Theodoric, right, with the support of his Visigoth allies, is he tries to add more senatorial seats from Gaul, right? Even at this late point in the empire, most senators in the Roman system come from Italy. And by adding senators from Gaul, what... Avitus is trying to do is to give those people skin in the game, right? They're starting to get split off into these different barbarian confederations where they have a real say in what's going on in their local area. And what Avitus is trying to do is give them an opportunity to have some input so these folks who aren't part of the Italian heartland will feel like they're still important to the empire. And unfortunately, what happens is Avitus gets a huge amount of backlash from senators in Rome who are opposed to this idea. And another thing that the Roman senators are opposed to is Avitus's reliance on a personal guard of Visigothic mercenaries. So in an effort to appease the Senate, in September of 456, Avitus disbands his Visigothic guard. And almost immediately, within a month, he is deposed by a general named Rysimer. He flees to Gaul. He tries to rally his Visigothic allies, including the personal guard he just sent home. 
Uh, but he's ultimately defeated in the field by Reisimer on October 17th. And what's interesting about this is that Reisimer's activity was tolerated by the Senate. See, Avitus may have been a Gallo-Roman leader, right? He wasn't quote-unquote a true Roman, but Reisimer is a Romanized Germanic general. In other words, his parentage isn't even remotely Roman. He's just sort of been allowed to serve in the army because he's effective. And it's because of this origin of his, the fact that he's German and not Roman, Reisimer knows he will never be accepted as emperor. But he also like this string of military dictators now, is not interested in appointing a strong leader. And what he does is he appoints a friend of his, a general of around the same age named Majorian. Now, Majorian is Roman, and Reisimer and Majorian had both served as generals under Aetius, uh, when he was famously holding the line in Gaul. So Majorian is a pick that has some credibility with the public. He also has credibility with the Eastern Empire, which is something that's still important, right? If you're in Western Rome at this time, if you're going to keep anybody happy, it's going to be the Eastern Emperor, and Reisimer sends an emissary to Marcion to convince him that Majorian would be the best emperor. But unfortunately, just at this moment, Marcion dies in 457 AD. So Majorian has the backing of Reisimer, right, this lead general, but he doesn't really have any legitimacy from outside the empire. And as it would so happen... That winter, late in 457 AD, some Alamanni raiders, some Germanic barbarians come down through the Alps into Italy. Now, this isn't a large group. There's only 900 of them. This isn't an invasion. This is a raid. But Majorian's troops defeat them. And it might be a small victory, but it's enough to get his army to acclaim him as emperor, which ultimately is all that Reisimer needs, Right? Now he thinks he's got his buddy, his friend Majorian, who's emperor, everything's good, and he can go on running matters as he pleases as more or less a military dictator. But Majorian was surprisingly active, uh, considering the, the backseat most recent Roman emperors had taken. Uh, he was of aristocratic blood. Uh, he was in his mid to late 30s at this point. We're not sure exactly how old he was, but he had served, right, with Reisimer as a general under Aetius, and he had a pedigree, too. His grandfather had served under Theodosius I as a magister militum, right, head general in the East. So uh, him coming up through the ranks in the West was not to be unexpected. And Majorian immediately takes a remarkably strong hand 
He tries to restore the Roman Empire, and he launches an all-out attack on the Visigoths, right? Forces them out of Hispania altogether and requires them to become a federate state, which means that they're in a client relationship with Rome. They pay Rome tribute. Their armies fight where and when Rome says, etc. Basically, they're part of the empire with some local administration for local matters. And he does the same for the Burgundians, another tribe which had come into Gaul. And then he tries to put together an invasion fleet. Uh, He wants to reclaim Libya, right, North Africa, and the island of Sicily from the Vandals. Uh, But unfortunately, that fleet is destroyed at anchor by saboteurs who were hired by, guess who, Geyseric. Yes, Geyseric is still around causing trouble. And meanwhile, Majorian is a little too independent for Rysimer's liking. And like all emperors of this period, he also had to rely on mercenaries for the bulk of his forces. In 461, after a campaign against the Vandals in Hispania, he disbanded his army of mercenaries and made his way back into Italy for the winter. And as he reached the border, Rysimer has him arrested, tortured, and executed, at least according to most sources. Now, the Eastern historian Procopius says he died of dysentery, so did he just happen to die of disease? Or was he tortured and murdered and his sickness was just propaganda that Rysimer spread later on? It's hard to say for sure, but the fact that at this point we don't even know how the emperor died tells us a lot about the state of the empire. It tells us that we are now going back into what historians called or used to call erroneously a dark age. We had good accounts for most of Roman history, and now we're starting to come to an era again where historians have to rely on archaeologists in some cases to figure things out. Right? You don't normally need that once writing's been invented, right? You have written records, but for some periods starting around now in the 450s and 460s, You're getting into an era where records are sketchy. And for the Roman Empire in particular, this death of Majorian in 461 AD marks the death of the last truly active emperor. And by that I mean the the last one who really had a good chance of turning things around here, right? Of making this fourth quarter comeback and winning the game for the Romans. And Procopius says of him, but meantime, Majorianus was attacked by the disease of dysentery and died. A man who had shown himself moderate toward his subjects and an object of fear to his enemies. And another emperor, Nepos, upon taking over the empire and living to enjoy it only a few days, died of disease. 
and Glycerius after him entered into this office and suffered a similar fate, and after him Romulus Augustus assumed the imperial power. There were, moreover, still other emperors in the West before this time, but though I know their names well, I shall make no mention of them whatever, for it so fell out that they lived only a short time after attaining the office, and as a result of this accomplished nothing worthy of mention. Such was the course of events in the West. Now, Procopius is a little bit biased. He is an Eastern historian, and he does even manage to get his emperors and their methods of death out of order, so really one wonders how much he's paying attention here, or how much he's just saying, eh, you know what, the Eastern Empire's better, and these Western Empire folks are just a bunch of losers. But... That's kind of what he seems to be saying in this passage, right? He's respected enough. It seems tough to believe that he would get these kinds of details wrong during a time he's covering in his history. And to me, at least, it means he doesn't even care at this point. Regardless, Rysimer learns his lesson Right, Majorian was a strong leader and ultimately charted his own course, and Rysimer appoints a new emperor, and this man is named Libius Severus. Now, Severus is a senator who is known for being pious, but he's not known for being political, right? He's really just a puppet. And this is an interesting choice for Rysimer, because by this point, almost everybody in the empire is a Christian, right? So choosing a pious Christian emperor who lets Rysimer more or less run the military as he pleases seems like a good fit. Unfortunately for Rysimer, Severus cannot get recognition from the new Eastern Emperor, Leo I. But Rysimer doesn't mind. See, he's able to rule through Severus as a puppet, as he could never rule through Majorian. As a matter of fact, his monogram even appears on some of Severus's coins, which tells you just how important Rysimer was and who was really in charge of the empire. Unfortunately, without the backing of the Eastern Emperor... Severus was not able to support his military as he would have liked to. For instance, throughout his entire reign, Vandal ships are raiding and pillaging Italy. Now, none of these raids get deep into the Italian heartland, but they do enough to damage the ports that they're devastating the economy. You cannot reliably trade anything in or out of Italy for risk that Vandal pirates under Geyseric might take it. But now Geyseric was even more dangerous than before because his new son-in-law, right, remember, he'd married Valentinian III's ex-wife, which meant he is now stepfather to her daughter Placidia, and her daughter Placidia is married to a Roman senator named Anicius Olibrius. This connects Olibrius both to the old Theodosian dynasty and to Geyseric. So Geyseric really wants Olibrius to be emperor. And moreover, Eastern Emperor Leo is backing Olibrius too. Now, Rysimer cannot 
necessarily just give in on this issue. He has prestige to maintain, but conveniently, Severus dies in 465 AD, having accomplished nothing of note. Now, on the one hand, some chroniclers say that he died peacefully in his sleep. On the other hand, other chroniclers say that Rysimer killed him. Now, was this the case, right? Rysimer benefited from a pliable emperor, but he also suffered from an emperor who was not accepted by the East. So maybe he just took this opportunity to get rid of a rival. Either way, what ends up happening is that Leo nominates an Eastern noble named Procopius Anthemius. Now, Anthemius was probably actually Martian's choice after Avitus, right? We don't know, right? Martian died before he could supply an answer to the question. But Anthemius was an up-and-coming military officer in the East. He had been married to Marcion's daughter, and Marcion had been grooming him. And he had led successful campaigns against both the Ostrogoths and the Huns. As a matter of fact, Anthemius is the general who had been leading that raid into the Hunnic lands when Attila decided to turn back from Italy. So he's got some experience. Now, he's also too independent for Rysimer to control. Right? He is his own man. And as soon as he officially takes the purple... In April of 467, he puts together a fleet to invade the Vandals, right? And Themius, this military man, immediately understands the importance of retaking North Africa and the agriculture that came from there. But unfortunately, a series of storms in the Mediterranean prevent his fleet from sailing. So the invasion is delayed until 468, when Anthemius and Leo put together a joint invasion fleet of a thousand ships. Actually, it was more than a thousand. It was a little over 1,100. And not only was this one of the most impressive fleets put together in history until this point, but it also deserves, I don't know, a little bit of violin music. Something to set the mood here, because this is the last significant joint military operation of the Eastern and Western Roman Empires. These ships sail in spring of 468 AD, and on board there are over 100,000 men, again a huge force drawn from both halves of the empire. Now, most of the funding, to be fair, came from Leo in the East, but there was also significant contribution from the West, particularly in manpower. And in all, you were looking at an expenditure of tens of thousands of pounds of gold. This is tens of millions of dollars in today's money. This was a truly impressive fleet, and when it arrived off the shores of Libya, Geyseric asked for five days of truce to offer peace terms. Now, 
ostensibly he's supposed to be figuring out what he can and can't offer. But what he's really doing is building a fleet of ships to respond. And he takes a bunch of cheap boats in the harbor and fills them with flammable material. And he turns them into what are called fire ships to wreak havoc on the Romans. Now, at this point, all he has to do is to wait for the wind to be blowing towards the Roman fleet, which it eventually is. Uh, He also allegedly bribes the eastern admiral Basilicus, who commanded that half of the fleet to sort of hold his ships back and withhold from attacking. That's not proven, but Procopius alleges it. And Procopius has this to say of the night of the attack. He says, But the Vandals, as soon as the wind had arisen for them, which they had been expecting during the time they lay at rest, raised their sails and, taking in tow the boats which, as has been stated above, they had made ready with no men in them, they sailed against the enemy. And when they came near, they set fire to the boats which they were towing, when their sails were bellied by the wind, and let them go against the Roman fleet." And since there were a great number of ships there, these boats easily spread fire wherever they struck, and were themselves readily destroyed together with those whom they came in contact with. And as the fire advanced in this way, the Roman fleet was filled with tumult, as was natural, and with a great din that rivaled the noise caused by the wind and the roaring of the flames, as the soldiers together with the sailors shouted orders to one another and pushed off with their poles, the fireboats and their own ships as well, which were being destroyed by one another in complete disorder. And already the vandals too were at hand, ramming and sinking the ships, and making booty of such of the soldiers as attempted to escape, that means making them slaves, and of their arms as well. But there were also some of the Romans who proved themselves brave men in this struggle, and most of all John, who was a general under Basilicus, and who had no share whatever in his treason. For a great throng, having surrounded his ship, he stood on the deck, and turning from side to side, kept killing very great numbers of the enemy from there. And when he perceived that the ship was being captured, he leapt with his whole equipment of arms from the deck into the sea. And though Genzon, son of Geyseric, entreated him earnestly not to do this, offering pledges and holding out promises of safety, he nevertheless threw himself into the sea, uttering this one word that John would never come under the hands of the dogs. This... Roman officer jumping overboard rather than being captured, swearing that he will never, quote, come under the hands of dogs. This is emblematic of the last defeat of the united Roman Empire. And in the battle, over 10,000 Romans are killed, but more importantly, the fleet scatters, right? This is a night battle. Every ship captain is doing the best he can, and everybody scatters over the Mediterranean, which means that the fleet cannot be conveniently reconvened to resume the invasion. 
The treasury at this point is empty. Leo I, Eastern Emperor, makes a separate peace with the Vandals, and the Western Empire is now on its own. And this is often considered the moment that the Western Empire had its last chance. If they win this battle, if they retake North Africa, that Mediterranean trade is restored, that united Roman sense of purpose is restored, and perhaps they can entice some of these barbarian states in Gaul and Hispania into this prosperity network that is the Mediterranean. Instead, their ships lie on the bottom of the sea as burned wrecks. And after that, Anthenius never really had a chance at restoring the Western Empire. It's unfortunate because, unlike a few of the most recent Western emperors, Anthenius was actually a good general. Over the course of the next three years, he spent his time fighting in Gaul, putting down one rebellion after another, but once again, he's unable to make headway without those desperately needed resources from North Africa, he simply can't consolidate any of the gains that he's able to make. And in 470, Anthenius uncovers a plot by a senator named Romanus. Now, Romanus is one of Ricimer's allies, one of the men he needs to stay in control. And when Anthenius discovers that Romanus is threatening to overthrow him, he orders Romanus executed. And at this point, Ricimer has had enough. He gave up a pliable emperor. He took on a strong, active emperor, and still the job hasn't been done. And meanwhile, Ricimer himself already has an army of 6,000 men in Italy preparing to attack who else but the Vandals. And street fighting breaks out between his supporters and Anthenius supporters. Now, the Bishop of Pavia, a respected churchman, talks both men into standing down for a year. And in early 472, anticipating fighting, Eastern Emperor Leo sends Olibrius to help mediate. Yes, that is the same Olibrius who, ironically enough, Chiseric has been trying to get into command for years now. So Olibrius comes to mediate. And allegedly, the Eastern Emperor Leo sent a separate note sent to Anthenius telling him to kill Olibrius as soon as they met. Now, that's just according to one source, the Greek historian John Malalas. But even if that is true, it tells us that Leo is again, still playing politics and isn't really ready for what's going on. Regardless, Ricimer intercepts this secret letter and shows it to Olibrius. Tells him, look, Leo's trying to have you killed. He's 
conspiring with Anthenius, and Ricimer ultimately declares Olybrius as the new Western emperor. Anthenius, of course, resists, but Ricimer puts the city of Rome under siege. Uh, during the course of this battle, he cuts off the city from its port. So the people in the city essentially have no way to get food. They have no way to get water. They're desperate. And after five months of siege in July, Anthenius' desperate supporters are starving and attempt to break out. On July 11th, they open the gates and try to sally out to fight Ricimer's men. Thousands are killed. Ricimer's men then move into the city to loot it, and Anthenius seeks sanctuary in a church. We're not sure which church this is. It might actually be the old St. Peter's Basilica, but it's disputed. Ultimately, Ricimer's men drag Anthenius out of the church and behead him. Either Ricimer himself or his nephew Gundabad does the deed. But regardless, Anthenius is dead and the empire is once again without an emperor. Now, Olybrius claims the throne, but within six weeks of Anthenius's death, Ricimer dies of an abscess and his nephew Gundubad takes over. But Olibrius also dies. He dies of dropsy, which is swelling, edema. We're not sure what exactly modern doctors would call it. Could have related to heavy drinking. But regardless, Olibrius is dead. So is Ricimer. And once again, in either late October or early November of the year 472, the Western Empire is once again leaderless. Now, Gundabad, Ricimer's nephew, takes over and appoints a general named Glycerius as the new Western Emperor in March of 473. But this doesn't work for two reasons. First off, Glycerius is incompetent. And the Eastern Emperor Leo knows it, and he appoints his own choice, Julius Nepos, as the new emperor. Now, Julius Nepos was already the governor of Dalmatia, right, that area by modern Croatia, on the Adriatic Sea, and he immediately moves his army across the Adriatic into Italy in 474 OD, ousts Glycerius without a fight and takes over the emperorship. Now, Nepos is generous. Rather than killing Glycerius, he simply has him made into a bishop, which is an interesting move at this time point, right? On the one hand, he keeps some authority. On the other hand, he is not allowed to have children, so he is no longer a risk. Um... And Nepos immediately realizes before he does anything else, he has to stabilize the situation in Italy. So he hires a Roman general named Orestes to do just that. And unfortunately, like so many of these greedy 
late era Romans, Orestes was only out for his own skin. And he turned his troops on Ravenna. And in August, in 475 AD, Julius Nepos, the last legitimate Western emperor, if that term even means anything at this point, is forced to flee back across the Adriatic Sea to Dalmatia and to make things worse at this point the eastern emperor Leo dies and there's a succession crisis in the east in other words whereas before a friendly eastern emperor might have backed up Julius Nepos and put him back in command now there is no help coming Instead, Orestes, this traitorous general who Julius Nepos had put in charge of recovering Italy, instead makes his own son the new emperor. And he gives him the name Romulus Augustus. Now, Romulus Augustus was never emperor in his own right. He was a child, he had no authority, and... In later years, people would go on to call him Romulus Augustulus, which means Little Augustus. It was nothing more than a mockery. And within just a year of beginning his reign, another warlord named Odoacer overthrew Romulus Augustus. And on September 4th, 476 A.D., even the most nominal Western emperor was overthrown. Now, this warlord, this man named Odoacer, did not even feel the need to kill Romulus Augustulus. Instead, he exiled the young emperor to a farm and even paid him a handsome pension until his death. And Odoacer declared himself not Roman emperor, but king of Italy. The title itself had become meaningless. And shortly thereafter, the Roman Senate that last anachronistic vestige of an older Republican era decided that it had no one to whom to entrust the imperial seals and badges, the seals of authority of the emperor. And so the Senate performed its last significant act by delivering the imperial seals to the new eastern emperor, Zeno. And in their official message, the Senate stated that Rome needs only one emperor. Zeno, powerless to do anything in the West, accepted the seals with dignity and without comment, 
but he was never able to press his claim in the West. And with few exceptions, no Eastern emperor never did. And the empire was never reunited. Ultimately, Julius Nepos, the last legitimate emperor, would continue ruling a rump state, the last remnants of the Western Empire in Dalmatia, modern Croatia, but that would be short-lived. In 480 AD, he takes part in a plot to try to return to the Western Imperial throne, and he's assassinated. Meanwhile, the Eastern Roman Empire known to themselves as the Romans, known to many modern people as the Byzantines, continued to control much of the eastern Mediterranean for almost another thousand years. In fact, the last Roman stronghold of Constantinople would not fall until 1453 A.D. That is... 977 years after the deposition of Romulus Augustulus. And if you're thinking about nationalism, right, if you're thinking about how different groups of people choose to organize themselves and govern themselves. You wonder, why did the Eastern Empire last almost another thousand years? And in part, this was logical because of the cultural differences between the different regions, right? The Latin half of the empire, the Western half, was more about trade and mutual benefit. The eastern half, the Greek half, was more about shared cultural identity, but it wasn't just that. It was also the fact that the Western Empire, as part of this this trade network, right, it provided security. In other words, there was a real benefit to living in the empire. We're living in polarized times right now in America and we're hearing talk about quote-unquote law and order. But I think few modern people can truly appreciate a society with no law and order whatsoever. Somebody has to keep businesses honest. Somebody has to make sure that you can walk from the grocery store to your house without being robbed. But as long as the Western Empire could do that, as long as they could provide benefits for people who lived there, they continued to survive despite centuries of adversity. But once those benefits disappeared once the barbarians were more powerful than the legions different regions divided based on their tribal identity 
right? If you didn't have this all-encompassing empire to provide security, what did you have? Well, you had your ancestral ties, and that depended on who you were. But nonetheless, this tribal infrastructure didn't just impose itself on a vacuum in the Western Mediterranean. It imposed itself on a bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy performed certain functions, right? We talked earlier about the title of ducks, right? The person responsible for maintaining local defenses. Well, it doesn't matter if you're the Romans or a barbarian or somebody else. You still want that function to be performed, right? You're still living in this ecosystem of castle warfare. So what happened was that the so-called feudal system, right? This system of local leaders under sort of a pyramid-style leadership going up to the king, it arose not as a total revolution, it arose as an evolution of the existing Roman system. And while tribal identity kept these barbarian kingdoms separate in the early Dark Ages, the old imperial bureaucracy imposed a common structure, and the old infrastructure even continued to linger in places. So... When we ask ourselves, what makes a nation? What makes a people an independent country? Is it tribalism? Is it bureaucracy? Is it some combination of the two that allows people to just function in their day-to-day -day lives? It's tough to provide a one-size-fits-all definition, but... The collapse of the Roman Empire and the survival of underlying institutions gives us some clues as to how nationalism functions in this messy ecosystem that we call humanity. And that's why it's relevant.